Hello, and thank you for tuning in. You are listening to the Bringing Inspiration to Earth show. You can listen and subscribe to the show for free on Spotify, TuneIn, iHeartRadio, Blog Talk Radio, Apple Podcasts, Amazon Music, and Audible. For network or show information, visit ByteRadio.me. And now, the Bringing Inspiration to Earth show. Hello, everyone, and thank you for joining us for this edition of the Bringing Inspiration to Earth show. Today, my special guest is Chris Rydell, and we'll be talking about his, new, his work and his new book, Blood Money, One Man's Bare-Knuckle Fight to Protect Taxpayers from Medical Fraud. Blood Money is the true legal thriller of a terrifying David versus Goliath fight against massive healthcare fraud by a brave whistleblower. It includes attempted murder, extortion, money laundering, fraudsters hiding money in the Cayman Islands, gold buried in a storage container in a CEO's backyard, an assistant attorney general sabotaging her state's case, and a corrupt governor torpedoing litigation by his own attorney general. From Silicon Valley to the Sunshine State, it's a showdown that reads like a Hollywood movie. Chris Rydell survives to share it all. His actions have resulted in a court verdict and settlements totaling more than $550 million and counting. Chris Rydell has spent the last 40 years in the healthcare industry and more recently as one of the leading healthcare fraud fighters. For the past decade, Chris has concentrated his efforts on fraud fighting against the medical labs that defraud American taxpayers and the medical industry, which is the subject of blood money. For more information, you can visit Chris's website, which is chrisrydellauthor.com. Okay, with that, I'd like to welcome Chris to the show. Good day, Chris. Well, good day, Robert. I'm I'm really interested to hear hearing your story um, because boy this is such a I mean I I know dozens of people who have uh, been hit with uh, you know this particular problem so I guess first of all um, why don't we start with why you know what motivated you to write Blood Money? Sure, um, there were really three motivations for me. Uh, one. Um, I thought it would make a great true crime thriller, and that's how I tried to write it. Um, secondly, I wanted um, – so I think it's just a good story. Secondly, I wanted uh, potential whistleblowers to understand that uh, <laughs> the chances of success in a whistleblower-like uh, lawsuit are less than the odds of being hit by lightning, and that – if you file a whistleblower lawsuit, your life will never be the same. The uh, defending companies, when they find out who's behind the lawsuit, do everything they can to destroy whistleblowers, and many of them end up bankrupt, unemployable, and divorced. It's, it's, it's very, very sad. And we got to the point in the book, you can read, that uh, we were literally two weeks away from personal and, and uh, personal bankruptcy and losing our company. We would have been homeless, but for the settlement. Um, and the third reason was uh, I wanted to make some suggestions. I made nine for the Department of Justice uh, that if they implemented them, they would be fighting fraud with tanks instead of water pistols. Last year, the Department of Justice collected less than 1% of the annual health care fraud projected by the Department of Justice. Wow. And so that's why I wrote the book. Wow. Yeah, that's just amazing. And, and later on, I kind of wanted to hear about some of those nine suggestions to the DOJ. Um, well, let's start with, first of all, then talking about um, the company, Hunter Labs. Can you tell us, um, tell us about it, what the vision was, what, what kind of work was done, um, and that kind of thing? Sure. Uh, the clinical laboratory testing is the best bargain in healthcare. It costs less than 
of uh, total costs, yet it drives 80% of a physician's decision. So it's a great bargain. And uh, I founded this laboratory in 2003. It was the second time I founded a clinical laboratory. The first I took public in 1992, and then I retired for 10 years before coming back into the industry. Quest Diagnostics, one of the two uh, largest labs in the country, had bought the only remaining local lab in Northern California. And so we felt there was a real opportunity to provide a much higher level of service because it would be local. And that's what we were focused on. And so we built a beautiful lab with the most modern equipment that money can buy. We had 150 highly trained employees. And after about two years, our sales force came to us, came to me and said, Chris, doctors hate the services of Quest and LabCorp. They just hate them. They want to use us. But from a very small portion of the total physician business, the part that's billed directly to the doctor, which is generally about 10%, uh, Quest is offering these very deep discounts. And unless we match them, uh, we're not going to get their business. And so <clears throat> the business model of the mm. two blood brothers, Quest and LabCorp, was to offer these below cost, often below-cost prices to the doctors because doctors don't want to use more than one lab. It's, it's too difficult to determine, okay, this mm-hmm. patient's going to go here and this patient's going to go there. Yeah. And so they make their money on what's called the pull-through, which is the Medicare, the insurance, and the Medicaid business, which are at much higher rates. That's how they make their money. And so when I looked at these prices and determined that many of them were below cost, I decided I better call our regulatory council and inquire about if I were to try and compete with this same model, would I be violating any laws? And the answer was absolutely. First of all, these are considered mm-hmm. kickbacks, both in federal and state law. And in addition, in California, where we operated at the time, um, the California Medicaid program for the the you know the indigent in California by statute it's entitled to the lowest charge that these laboratories charge any customer, and they were not passing those discounts on to the Medicaid program. They were often charging twenty to forty times what they charged their you know some of their most favored customers. In effect, they were stealing money from California taxpayers, and so. Knowing this, I really had three uh, three decisions I could make. Uh, one was to, you know, knowingly violate federal and state law and try and compete, and I was not going to do that. The second was to close the business, uh, fire 150 employees, uh, write off most of our net worth, and just walk away. And the third was to try to stop the fraud against taxpayers, the illegal business model and then level the playing field for all laboratories, mostly smaller laboratories, to compete on the quality of services rather than the value of kickbacks. And that's what I chose to do. Wow. Uh, yeah, that, I mean, that's a, a, daunting, um, a daunting task. So um, tell us about uh, how the um, – how, how you – what about it? I mean, you, you know, you said you, you know, you asked to see if it was was legal or not, and so you you chose this stop the fraud whistleblower path. Tell us about how that unfolded. I mean, you know, did it go to the tears? How how did it? Yeah, how, sure. I, mean, for someone else, um, I asked my uh, long time, I asked my long time personal attorney, how can I stop this? It took him a couple of months, and finally he said, have you heard about the whistleblower statute? And I'd vaguely heard about it, but I didn't know much about it. And it seemed to be the only way that we could try and stop this. And I found a a wonderful law firm that did that kind of law, Cotchett, Petrie, and McCarthy. And what you do when you become a whistleblower is you, you file a lawsuit on behalf of the government. In this case, it was on behalf of the state of California. The whistleblower uh, statue was actually created during the Civil War to stop fraud on the Union Army, you know, bullets that wouldn't fire, horses that died the next day. 
and it's you know it's lived until this day and it's designed to create a public private partnership between the departments of justice and an insider with knowledge of an industry and they're supposed to work together so we you file this lawsuit it's immediately sealed by a judge so that nobody knows it's out there giving the government then time to investigate the evidence you've presented and the veracity and and validity of the claims. Uh, I thought, because we had all the evidence in the world, the facts were clear, the law was clear, I thought when I went into this that this was going to be quickly resolved. (laughs) Boy, was I wrong. (laughs) It turns out the average whistleblower, the average time to resolve a whistleblower lawsuit is seven years. Um, And in our case in California, we were very fortunate to, to have an assistant attorney general assigned to the case. His name is Dennis Fenwick, and he's a real hero, who chose to work with us. He said, look, guys, you do all the legal work. You do the motions. You do the discovery. You go through all the documents. I'll write. I, he was going to buy a supercomputer, a very expensive computer, and he was going to do the damage claim on an invoice-by-invoice basis for 30 million claims so that it was unassailable. Oh, yeah. And because we worked together and we had the knowledge of the industry, it went very well. And after um, four years, just before, just as soon as a trial date was uh, set, uh, the defendant, Quest and LabCorp asked for mediation. And it was during the mediation that I sat there absolutely stunned watching these huge numbers for the settlement. you know, eventually reach what was at the time and still is the largest settlement in the history of a state faults or whistleblower lawsuit. For Quest alone, it was $241 million. Wow. So anyway, now, okay, so now that that's done, I mean, is there, did that lawsuit result in any, industry changes that you know of well it it, unfortunately it really didn't and the reason is Mm -hmm. that quest said look we can't go and change all of our contracts overnight give us a year before we have to uh you know give the lowest discount to the medicaid program i don't know why but the attorney general's office allowed them to continue the fraud for that year and then, after the end of that year, it refused to stop the practice. It said, we're done, we've had enough. And eventually, Quest was successful in convincing the legislature to repeal the law and eliminate the lowest charge. Now, why the legislature would do that and cost taxpayers more money is be- beyond me, absolutely beyond me. Wow. Wow. You know, Sometimes, sometimes it, it's um, very frustrating. I think for people to, you know, who want, who see injustice, want to fight it, you know, and then see that you know the efforts don't, you know, don't change things. So, but it's, I, I guess maybe it's just one of these things that it just has to be re- relitigated, maybe until until it's done. I mean, what, what do what do you think would be? Um, a next step to try to make it, uh, I mean, with, with the legislature, I guess, maybe that would be the route to go since they repealed um, yeah, that well, part of the law. Fortunately, it turns out that at this point, um, I, the, the Attorney General in California, Dennis Fenwick, asked us to bring the same lawsuit in seven other states that had the same law. So here we have the same defendants, the same facts and the same law, and we thought, oh, my gosh, this is going to be easy. Well, boy, that didn't turn out too well. So we ended up spending a lot of time doing the same thing in these other states, and that's where we ran into the most incredible things, like the governor of Florida, Rick Scott at the time, who's now chairman of the Republican Party, um, torpedoed his own attorney general's case. Um, he wrote a mandate to the Department of Health Services ordering them to testify that they weren't aware of the law, they had never enforced the law, and it would be unfair to hold the defendants accountable. Can you believe that? 
Wow. The Attorney General's and, office and was furious. Yeah, that's, and that's then incredible. in Michigan, in Michigan, um, finally the Michigan, after four years, they decided they, you know, they liked the lawsuit. They wanted to prosecute it with us, and uh, it was unsealed then by the judge, who immediately set a routine motion hearing. And during the hearing, uh, he set a trial date for three weeks away. I mean, that's almost unheard of. So the defendants right. uh, immediately filed a summary judgment motion in which they're saying, there's no facts here, there's no evidence, you know, throw this thing out. It's just a waste of everybody's time. We had, we had little concern for this because we had the evidence in spades. So we, we get to the uh, courtroom, and the judge calls the case, and he says, this is the oldest case on my docket. It's five years old. If the attorney general's office takes this long and thinks this little of the case that it takes five years to bring it to me, I'm not going to accept it. Case dismissed. Oh, that's insane. It wow. is totally insane. I know. And, I mean, oh. in the book, there's story after story about you can't believe these things happened. Um, but it's true. Uh, and I think the readers will really like these stories and end up outraged. And we haven't talked about yeah. the Federal Department of Justice yet, where I've spent the last several years. Um, and we did finally get some cases through. One of them went to trial, and uh, the defendants were found guilty, and the fine was $114 million. And we did change some practices on a federal level. Uh, so I'm, I'm quite... I'm quite proud of that. Yeah, well, that's great. You know, and, and it seems that um, sometimes, I guess, you know, having to get to that federal level, you know, um, I mean, sometimes, you know, bottom up, you know, this doesn't work. Maybe sometimes it's top down that we have to kind of, in order to deal with, since it's, you know, massive and in every state. I mean, it, it, it's one of those things that is just not, you know, it's just um, an overwhelming kind of uh, issue that needs to be addressed on um, a large scale. Yes, but on the federal level, they have a policy, the Department of Justice in Washington, D.C., they don't want to share information with the people who bring it to them. And as a consequence, mm. things rarely go well. They don't have the understanding of the industry. They claim they're overworked and, uh, you know, they just don't have time. And yet we're offering great lawyers to them who will do, you know, a lot of the work, and they say no. And so as a consequence, these things drag out for years. And um, DOJ, unfortunately, is more focused on, quote, affordable civil settlements than stopping fraud punishing fraudsters so it pays hmm. and as long as fraud pays it's not going to go anyway go go away no no now no, that's terribly you know, frustrating to me yeah because i mean if there are no consequences you know they can just weigh the you know the the fine or whatever it is that they're they're going to receive against you know the the amount of fraud and then I'm sure that the amount of fraud just far outweighs anything that they could oh be it fined. does the average settlement's probably twenty to thirty cents on the dollar stolen, so they're keeping mm. seven to eighty percent of their theft. I mean, who's going to stop fraud if you get to keep that kind of money and nobody loses their job or their bonus uh you know it's just Quest has had 10 fraud settlements and one criminal settlement. Nobody got fired. Nobody lost their job. They all got races. Wow. So now, gosh, how, how do you continue to fight? <laughs> I mean, you know, where, where, where do you get that, that drive to, to keep it up when you see, you know, some of the, the challenges that keep getting thrown up? It's just, I guess, a passion for me. Uh, you know, I have this morality mm -hmm. that says somebody needs to stand up when they know about a wrongdoing on taxpayers and try and do something. And I'm hopeful that, you know, we're going we're, we're gonna to actually stop some fraud, and we have. 
So um, it's yeah, it's just what's within me. Yeah, yeah, that's. Um, well, I mean, you have to have a passion for it. Otherwise, I, I would think that you know, just the first the beatdown and and also the the uh, the attacks. Now, for when when you know these companies found out about you your activities, um, how how did they go about attacking you? I mean, what were some of the things that they did that kind of maybe even surprised you that they would do? Sure. Well, first, let me tell you about a couple of other people who had worse things happen to them. Uh, one whistleblower okay. found that this huge company, huge pharmaceutical company, who was manufacturing in uh, Puerto Rico, she was the quality control manager, and she found that the company was ignoring quality control and shipping out injectable drugs that were unsafe. So she went to her boss, and her boss said, just forget about it, you know, just be quiet, da da and then they attempted to run her off a cliff, and they did run her off a cliff, and she almost died. Um, that's the worst one I know of. Another one, uh, a young family came home and found their family dog nailed to the front door and written in the dog's blood, stop. I mean, these, you know, wow. these big companies, you know, they don't want their profits taken away. In my case... When Quest and LabCorp found out that my laboratory was the plaintiff, they went to a large insurance company, Blue Shield. Now, together, they received 70 to 80% of the payments for all outpatient laboratory testing in California. That's how big they were. And they said to Blue Shield, we will voluntarily cut our prices by 10% if you take Hunter Labs, my lab, out of network. And, of course, Blue Shield did. And if you lose a major insurance carrier like that, it's like a dagger to the heart. We just started yeah. bleeding out. And we couldn't possibly survive. And I kept, you know, we kept funding it with everything we had until, you know, we, we got to the settlement of the case. Uh, but we lost a lot of money. And we eventually lost our lab. We had to sell it because we just couldn't, you know, we just couldn't compete without that contract. Wow. So do you feel that, you know, these uh, companies who have majorities, do you think there should be um, like a force um, breakup? You know, I mean, it seems that, you know, these mega companies, you know, throw their weight around and they just <laughs> do, what, do what they want regardless of the law. So do you think maybe there should be some kind of federal intervention to maybe, you know, break up? The, the control that they have on on these shows, or is it, or is it simply you know between Quest and LabCorp, you know that competition enough in some mind? Well, we used to have a very vibrant laboratory industry with lots of smaller laboratories, and that's where the innovation comes from. Quest and LabCorp mm -hmm. are not good at innovating things. You know, they just buy a company that innovates something. But as the smaller companies go away, you're going to have less innovation and a less healthy industry. If the government would just stop the predatory practices and make them follow the law and punish them when they don't follow the law, I think, I think that would bring back a better industry and allow smaller labs to compete. Yeah, that that sounds like, you know, because I think just we've seen in other industries, you know, that the, the you know, diversification, you know, and, and, and competition, you know, really does lead to innovation, you know, and, and, um, and then if, but if you have some people sitting back on their laurels that, you know, they control, there's very little motivation for them to innovate. Well, um, there is motivation. They're just not good at it. Um, <laughs> okay. uh, plus, I'll give you another horrible example. Um, in the book, early, there's a picture of a young woman, Deborah Weissacall, in Florida, uh, and her two young daughters. Uh, LabCorp misdiagnosed a pap smear. Pap smears are intended to identify cervical cancer. And there's another picture three years later where she's on her deathbed with her two young daughters, and she died. And uh, a jury in Florida found that LabCorp was negligent in reading this PAP. And then I later learned that both of these companies allocate 
$3 for legal affairs for their pap smear testing business. Now, that's 20% of the revenue. And in my entire career in the lab industry, I've never spent $1 uh, on a lawyer for any type of uh, inaccurate test. Hmm. That, boy, you know, when, when you hear those facts, it, it's just hard not to be outraged, you know, and recognizing that, you know, they're basically, you know, kind of allowing in their business plan for death, you know. Yeah, they're far more concerned with uh, the share price than anything else. And if they can cut Mm -hmm. a service or cut a cost by, you know, a penny a share, it's gone. Hmm. Yeah. Wow, that's amazing. Now, in, I, I understand that in 2011 that you were named the Taxpayers Against Frauds Whistleblower of the Year. So tell, tell us about that organization and uh, that honor that you received. At the time, I didn't know what that organization was. And when I showed up to uh, receive the award, I was stunned to see a room full of hundreds of attorneys all dressed up in suits and ties in a very formal ballroom, and it was a really big deal. Um, and I had not prepared any remarks, and they handed me the award. It was like, uh-oh, what am I going to say? <laughs> and, uh, you know, I, I've come to respect that organization tremendously. These are the lawyers that are involved in the whistleblower lawsuits and also the whistleblowers themselves. And uh, they really, really try and help people who are considering whistleblowing, who are doing it. And, of course, they lobby Congress, and it's a wonderful organization. And if anybody is thinking of, you know, doing a whistleblower lawsuit, they can always contact Taxpayers Against Fraud in Washington, D.C., or they can contact me um, as well. Yeah, that's great. You know, because uh, from the sound of it, um, if someone – is going to choose the path of being a whistleblower, they really need to be prepared for things to take a long time, you know, and, and for a lot of struggle. So they really need to be passionate, I would think, in order to take, you know, take that path. The first thing they have to ask is, am I willing to take the risk to me and to my family? Now, in my book, I have a chapter on rules for whistleblowers, which can, there are things they can do to protect themselves, and that's just must-reading for anybody who's thinking about doing it. Okay, yeah, that, that's really great. Well, we're, we're, gonna, we're about halfway through the show um, already, so I want to take just a, a quick break, uh, Chris. And then I do want to invite listeners, if you'd like to call in and ask Chris any questions, you can call in at 619-789-4359. And for li- listeners in the chat room, if you have any questions, feel free to pose them there. And then when we come back from break, Chris, I want to talk about um, your view right now uh, just of medical fraud in general in the industry and, and, you know, kind of where we're at, get a a thermometer of where we're at, okay? Great. Okay, everyone stay tuned. We'll be right back after this very brief break. Hello, this is Robert Sharp. I want to thank you for joining us, and I hope that you are enjoying today's show. Just a reminder that we have a wealth of information and resources available on our website, byteradio.me. There is a calendar of upcoming shows, along with an archive link that will give you access to more than 1,600 shows that we have had during the past 12 years. Also on the site is a link to the products and services we provide, books, nature photography, calendars, and 5x7 photo greeting cards. Our show is a free podcast on Blog Talk Radio, iHeartRadio, Spotify, Apple Podcasts, and TuneIn. And you can subscribe for free on any of those platforms by using the links on our website homepage. We are on social media platforms, Facebook, Twitter, and LinkedIn, etc. And we also have buttons to those platforms on the top of our homepage. Our website, ByteRadio.me, has much for you to explore and enjoy. I also very much appreciate you supporting our guests, and especially today's guest. 
And now, back to the show. Okay, everyone, thank you for staying with us again today. My special guest is Chris Rydell, and we are talking about his work and as well as his new book, Blood Money, One Man's Bare Knuckle Fight to Protect Taxpayers from Medical Fraud. And again, you can find out more by visiting his website, which is chrisrydellauthor.com. Okay, Chris, um, we're back. So um, let's let's talk about uh, you know fraud, the, the extent of fraud in general. Now, you were talking about your work in particular with labs and their you know their activities. So can you tell us just from your perspective, um, is is that just like a canary in the coal mine, or is that just a, a piece of the puzzle that is so much more than that? Uh, healthcare fraud is pervasive in all of the branches in it, medical devices, pharmaceuticals. Um, in fact, one assistant U.S. attorney general commented at a Taxpayers Against Fraud conference that Merck, one of the largest pharmaceutical firms in the world, is really organized crime masquerading as a drug company. That's how bad wow. it is. And as I, as I mentioned, 25% of all the dollars spent in healthcare are stolen. Now, just think, you know, as, as uh, you and me and your listeners, if you could reduce your healthcare costs 25%, how much money would that represent to you and how important would it be? Oh, my God. You know, and, and for those who can't afford it, that 25% might be just the, the barrier to say, yes, I can bring it versus not. Exactly. Your, your, your premiums would go down, your co-pays would go down. Um, but in order to do that, DOJ has to decide they really want to stop fraud. Mm. Wow. What? Boy. <laughs> you know, that's, I mean, and it's, uh, it's a really tough one because you would think that that would be a no-brainer. <laughs> you know, that that would be. Yeah, I know. I you certainly know, did. <laughs> <laughs> uh, you know, um, my gosh. So do you feel that it's maybe just uh, the sheer power of those companies, you know, both from um, a monetary standpoint plus the services they provide? I mean, you know, you know, one of them goes down, you're, you're kind of eliminating half of your resource availability. Well, you know, that, that's certainly valid. They're both too big to jail and too big to fail. However, mm -hmm. I don't believe in the too big to fail because, you know, all the infrastructure is there. Some other laboratory is going to acquire parts or all of it. Um, but if, once you make the decision that they're too big to, you know, jail or fail, they can do anything they want. Yeah. Wow. Yeah, that's, uh, boy, this is something that we really need to get people really need to learn more about. And, and I think people um, rec or maybe have a sense that that is going on, but I just don't think that they have, a, you know, I didn't have a, a, a true appreciation of the extent um, of the fraud. And, oh, um, yeah, yeah. And, and let, me, let me give you one of the uh, examples I, I suggested for the Department of Justice that won't cost the department – or the taxpayers a penny, that, but I think will have a big effect in reducing fraud. And it's really simple. If a company signs a settlement agreement with the Department of Justice, then the DOJ won't sign it unless there's an agreement that all of the monies paid to the board of directors and the senior management during the time the fraud went on, which of course generated their compensation, all of those payments have to be returned. If you did mm -hmm. that, you'd have the board of directors hiring their own regulatory attorneys looking at the company instead of management, and the boards themselves would be very serious about making sure that everything was above board. Simple suggestion, and it'll have yeah, a big impact. Yeah. Yeah, that makes sense. Now, was that one of the the suggestions you gave to the DOJ that uh, that would help yes. matters? Yeah, another okay. one is another one is as the statute was designed, work with the people and their attorneys who bring the lawsuit. It's free, very skilled labor. Let them do all the hard work. Yeah. At DOJ, you're still going to approve everything that goes on, but you know, 
work with them. <laughs> if they yeah. could just do that, it would have a huge impact. Yeah. Well, you know, plus, the, you know, those people are closer to the problem. So there's, you know, you're more, like you mentioned, you know, as far as knowledge of the activity of what's going on. Is, is exactly. You know, and, and, in California, yeah. for example, we asked for their, all their fee schedules, and they were sent to us in some uh, computer format that nobody could understand. So when I saw it, I said, okay, here's a copy of what they are when they pass them out to doctors. Ask for these. Now, without me, they wouldn't have known to do that. Yeah. Hmm. Yeah. So, you know, you, you mentioned partners. Uh, you have two attorney partners, Neil and Justin. Tell, tell us how your little group, I would say little, how your group came to be formed. Well, um, once my personal attorney told me that he should consider a whistleblower lawsuit, uh, the very next day in the paper, there was an announcement of a pharmaceutical settlement where the Kachet firm, Neil's firm, uh, was involved. And so I then went to that firm, and that's how I first met them. Wow, that's very fortuitous to have that happen right there. I'll say. <laughs> well, you know, and when things like that happen, to me it just – um, supports the idea of, you know, this was a kind of a path that was put in front of you, um, and it was up to you to decide to walk down that path, but it was an option for you. And there, it looks like you were, there forces were trying to make it easy for you to make that decision. Well, um, I had no idea at the time what happened to yeah. the whistleblowers. My wife did not mm-hmm. want me to file this lawsuit. And it took me yeah. four months to convince her it was the only possible way out for us to save our business. Finally, she looked right. me in the eye and she said, Chris, if it means this much to you, go ahead. But if our children are hurt, I will never forgive you. Mm. <laughs> that's pretty, that's <Yeah>. tough. <laughs> <laughs> wow. Yeah. Well, you know, and I can understand her, you know, her point too you know oh, of course now, but, and now that uh, i know about yeah. what can go wrong yeah she was dead on i'm not sure i would have done it had i known that my life would never be the same is that right you, you don't think you would have well i mean whistleblowers get tarred and feathered now i did believe right. we had a very strong case and we were we right. were i was lucky in twofold one i ran into some great lawyers in neil mccarthy and justin berger and two, uh, we ran into the to an attorney general, assistant attorney general, who chose to work with us. So I was very fortunate yeah. in that case. Yeah, yeah. Wow. So what, where is it, where does it stand? Where do you stand now? What I mean, what are are you working on some cases right now? Yes, quite a few. Um, when I was in the industry, I would see, I would compete with people, and that's how I would see that the, the frauds they were committing. But I retired when I sold my business from being a CEO, and now I get, I frequently get calls from people who think that they have found something very bad going on in their company, and they want to know if if it, it if it rises to the level of fraud where they should consider a whistleblower lawsuit. And you know, I'll then do a little research. And if I if I conclude that yes this is very serious, then uh, I offer to form an LLC partnership with them, and we work it together with Neil and Justin. So I'm not actually okay. searching for cases; they come to me. Well, I would think that that would be the case. Well, with you know having those records in California settlement. Um, you know, that would be a draw because it's, it's obvious that it's important to have part of your team, people who know what's involved, you know, knows uh, because you know, otherwise there could be so many ways that, you know, something like that can go wrong um, oh, yeah. as far as one's own safety. Yeah, for sure. Um, and you can spend, you know, you can end up unemployable and have the case thrown out because you didn't have a lawyer, for example, who was extremely experienced in the whistleblower lawsuit industry. Yeah. Wow. So now, having 
you know, been a CEO yourself um, and seen these other CEOs' methods, <laughs> um, what what is your view? I mean, it seems like there might be a, a lack of ethics in <laughs> some of their parts. <laughs> Um, to put it mildly, um, how how do you what's your view of of that and and you know it's particularly in the medical industry, the medical health and health industry. Well, um, CEOs are driven by profit, and yeah. if it's more profitable to commit fraud than not, many people are going to succumb to I want the profit. And if, in fact, they know that the worst that's going to happen to them, if they get caught, is a, you know, they can only keep 70 to 80% of it, it pays. And as long as it pays, people are going to do it. That's where yeah. DOJ has to change its attitude. They have to make it so that it yeah. doesn't pay. Okay. Yeah, I was, you know, I was wondering exactly. I mean, um, it sounds like it's all very bottom line, and you know, in order to to get change, you have to inflict pain. Financial yeah, and you know, once we start seeing the CEOs of big companies being perp walked and serving prison sentences, it'll stop. Yeah. Wow. I hope our DOJ, current DOJ, will kind of get on on that kind of thing. Um, so now, do you feel that there's, I mean, there's hope, you know, for for uh, on the horizon for some changes, big scale changes? That's one of the reasons I wrote the book. And the only way it's going to happen is if someone, is if Congress itself gets involved and, you know, reads the book and sees, you know, oh, my God, DOJ just isn't doing the job and holds hearings, or someone in the administration. Now, fortunately, Neil McCarthy, my lawyer, is very close to Kamala Harris. Um, but no. she's got her hands full right now. Yeah. <laughs> I'm hoping that you no know, when, when we resolve a few things in this country, Kamala will be very happy to sit down with Neil and uh, you know go over this stuff. And she herself was the attorney general when we had our settlement in California. Okay. Okay. So, you know, again, and I think, you know, um, that sounds like that's very encouraging, you know, because um, you need someone's ear, someone who can make things happen or, or at least move things in the right direction, you know, and, and I'm sure she, she is one that would be able to do that. Well, if you're vice president, uh, you certainly uh, can, but she's a little busy yeah. right now. Right. And I would encourage right. your right. listeners to write their congressmen and, you know, say, hey, you know, if, if DOJ is collecting 1% of fraud and no one's going to jail, uh, come on, you know, hold hearings, do something. And the champion within the Congress is Senator Chuck Grassley from Iowa. He really? is the most important huh. person. Yes, he's, he's the modern whistleblower advocate within the Congress. Oh yeah. Oh, that's right. Yeah, I remember that. Okay. Yeah, and and, and you know that's wonderful, and, and I'm glad that he does, you know, support the program and, and the people involved in it. Um, now, get, we can get that moved over to the medical, uh, you know, because this the cost of medical care is just so outrageous in this country, and and I. I we just don't – I don't see it slowing down. and Or, you know, I mean, it's just one of those – it's unsustainable the way that it's going. It is. It is unsustainable. But, you know, if we stop fraud, yeah. uh, we'd save a lot of money. Oh, absolutely. Yeah. And, you know, and, and that's – I mean, I would think that that would be the first step is to stop the fraud and, and enforce the law, you know, equally. Yep. You know, whether you're a CEO or a whistleblower. Um but just enforce the loan. One can hope. Yeah, I think so. So now, is your hope that um, people reading Blood Money will um, not only become aware of what, what the problem is, but also become active? My hope is that they will love, love the page turning, feel it's a page turner, and just love the book. And that, yes, when they see what's in there and they see the stories, they'll contact their, their congressional representatives and say, you know, you've got to do something about this. Yeah, yeah. It, I, I think it, it, it just 
something that really needs to be done. And, uh, you know, the, um, I have to say your title, Blood Money, <laughs> you know, it's an attention getter, <laughs> you know, it's, uh, which uh, I'm sure that it was meant to do. But, I mean, immediately. Well, they make their money off that, of blood. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, and and uh, yeah, that that's real important. And I mean, it's important to to know. And but again, you know, it's important to to raise awareness. I think that's that's where we're lacking is just is people are unaware. And um, I I just wonder sometimes how how people how many people want to really be aware you know i mean there's so many things going on or there's it seems like a willful blindness happening among people that i guess if if i don't see it i don't hear it i don't talk about it it doesn't exist um but um that is certainly not the case but those of us in the trenches in healthcare see it all the time yeah. Now, do you feel that with this COVID-19 pandemic that we've had, um, that it's been a maybe a prime um, source of more fraud? I mean, oh, my know, God. That, uh, Anytime you throw out that kind of money. Let me tell you about a lawsuit that was just brought. Uh, Blue Cross Blue Shield in Kansas City sued a laboratory there. The COVID test costs about $15 to run. This company was charging, on average, $825 to the insurance company for every COVID test. That's 10 times the Medicare rate. I mean, it's just, it's wow. just it boggles the mind. And how can one, I mean, is this a case where the people or doctors have to use that particular lab, or is it no, no, lab uh, doctors and or? patients can can go to any lab they choose. Okay. So what would but, but they be don't the know what's being for charged. This is being oh, charged to the okay. insurance company. Unless you look okay. at your explanation of benefits carefully, you have no idea this is going on. So the, the doctor wouldn't know unless, like, for example, a patient brought it to his attention that this particular lab charged them that amount of money for the work that was done. Yes, and in this case, the, with the CARES Act, where all this money came from, um, right. there was no copay or deductible. So nobody knew the insurance company was being ripped off. And, uh, and the, the company's defense is, hey, the CARES Act says you have to pay. It doesn't say you have to pay how much. And this is our fee. Hmm. Okay. Wow. Um, it, 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 to me, it's just um, I just never failed to be to be um, bamboozled. I mean, um, flabbergasted by some of the things that are going on. That it's just um, it just shows that the system is broke. I mean, that we really need to to overhaul. But but how how to how to overhaul such a humongous you know, thing. You know, it's like trying to turn the it, tip it around takes, on a dime. It, it's simple. Know? It's simple. It takes a mindset. We are not going to allow fraud to pay. Period. When when de- when the Department of Justice comes up with that mindset, it'll it'll, it'll go way down overnight. Okay. Okay. Well, that's you know that's important. Calling for those of the listeners here in the U.S. to to get on to, uh, and contact their congresspeople to get that taken care of. So, my goodness. No, so, is there another book in your future, Chris? Uh, I'm thinking about it, but it's a lot of work. I really enjoyed writing <laughs> this one, but I think I'll take uh-huh. a little break for a while. Yeah, I'm sure. that, that have Live a little bit of life before you write about it, <laughs> whatever you're going to Yeah, yeah, for sure. Well, um any maybe any final words you might want to give to our listeners that uh, maybe we didn't cover that you think is important for them to know? Sure. First of all, I hope you all enjoy the book. And uh, secondly, uh, if any of you want to reach me, uh, you can reach me at my website, chrisrydell.author at gmail.com. And in particular, if anybody thinks they knows of a know of a fraud and don't and would like to do something about it or just alert someone, contact me. I'll be happy to go over it with you. 
Oh, that's great to know. That's a wonderful resource, and I'll be sure to let everyone know. You know, when when people come to me with ideas, um, I'll certainly direct them your way. Well, Chris, I really want to thank you for your time today. I mean, this is such an important issue, and, and um, you know, it, I think it's going to take, you know, books like yours, you know, to, to raise that awareness and for people to get motivated. Um, and uh, I hope we do. Thank you, Robert. I, I appreciate the support. You're, you're very welcome. Um, and now, people again, you said can contact you through your website, uh, chrisrydellauthor.com, correct? Correct. Okay, great. Um, now, are you on social media? Do you do the social media thing? Uh, I have, yes, I do have a Facebook and a LinkedIn and all of that, and I can be contacted through there as well. Okay, yeah. Some people use those platforms, and it's nice yeah. to know that if you're there, that they, they can reach you. Well, good. Well, thanks, Chris, and, and thank you for your work doing this because, I mean, I, I appreciate it, <laughs> and I'm sure everyone else does. And um, it, it takes a lot of courage to be able to do what you're doing, and, um, yeah, and I appreciate you doing that. Thank you for your kind words, Robert. You're very welcome. Again, everyone, today my special guest has been Chris Rydell. We've been talking about his work. Um, is a fraud buster and also his new book Blood Money One Man's Bare Knuckle Fight to Protect Taxpayers from Medical Fraud Um, definitely go pick up the book and and read it it's a page turner so everyone I want to thank you for joining us for this edition of the Bringing Inspiration to Earth show and until we meet again thank you for tuning in you've been listening to the Bringing Inspiration to Earth show Remember, our show is available as a free podcast from Spotify, iHeartRadio, TuneIn, Apple Podcasts, Blog Talk Radio, Amazon Music, and Audible. To follow our show on any of those platforms, visit ByteRadio.me and select the one you use most. You can also find us on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter at ByteRadioMe. Until we meet again, remember to be a bright light by bringing inspiration to your world and to the lives of those you touch.